Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you, Deborah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. That in it you show us who you are and what you're about. And thus you show us who we are in you. In these moments as we reflect on the truths of the gospel and the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples so many years ago, move upon our hearts and illumine them that we may understand, not just understand this passage in an intellectual way, but that our hearts might be moved to mission, to follow after you in loving the places you've put us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think I've told this story before, but um, it's a story from my dad's life, the late 70s, I believe. Um, and his run-in, more or less, with a church in the area. Um, I don't know what church, so if you're looking for gossip, that's not, I don't have it for you. But <laughs> one Saturday night, my dad and his brother were partying, um, and they were hanging out with each other. And in the haze of whatever they were talking about, they turned to spiritual topics. They started talking about Jesus. And these were two men who really didn't have much in the way of church experience. Long hair. Um, they looked like the 70s probably. Um, so anyway, but they decide in the haze of that evening that they are going to go to church the next day. Who knows where this came from, but they were going to do it. Next morning comes and they get up and they go to this church. They walk in the door and they sit down. They don't have Sunday best on because they don't own Sunday best. Long hair. They probably smell like the night before. They sit down, and a man comes up to them after they've been there a little while, and he says, uh, excuse me, I need you to leave. You are not welcome here. And my dad and his brother get up, and they walk out, and for the rest of his life, my dad never walked into another church for worship service. Um, what he had been told that morning by that man in that church is that whatever Jesus was about was not for him was not for him. He didn't meet whatever requirements they needed him to meet to even walk in the door. Now, I'm glad to say my dad came to faith before he passed away when I was 17, but it didn't happen in a church. It happened through the friendship of good people and the faithfulness of my mom. Why do I bring that up? Well, I think if you'd walked into that church and you had asked the people there, even the man that walked up to my dad and said, you're not welcome here, and you asked them what was important, they would say, well, we believe the gospel. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. They would have talked about the gospel. But when two men literally walk in their door who desperately need to hear about the love of Jesus, they had no time for it. Because something other than the gospel of Jesus had gained the center of who they were. Something other than the gospel had become the center of who this church was. They had no time for people who needed God's grace because something else had gained the center. 
We've spent the last month or so talking about the gospel. We've looked at the events of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How the gospel isn't just an inspiring story to make us want to be better people. How it's not just a list of things to do, good advice on how to live. That the gospel is the story of how God has worked to remove every obstacle that stands in the way between us knowing and experiencing his love. We spent the last few weeks looking at what God has accomplished and the benefits that come from that. We've talked about the good news of a new record before God. That because of Jesus, we are forgiven of sin and we stand righteous in God's sight. We talked about a new heart from God. That God is changing our motivation. That we're not motivated by guilt or shame. We're motivated because we are dearly loved by God. We've talked about the good news of a new community. That God is forming churches to be communities that are defined and surround this gospel and never leave it behind. And we've talked about the good news of a new world, that Jesus is at work to make all things new. But this week, I want to talk about the next question that comes up. The next question. What does it look like for us to be and to grow into and to remain a gospel-centered church? Not just a place where we would say, yes, we affirm that Jesus died for our sins. What does it mean for us to be a church that the gospel is the very center of who we are and everything we do? The very lifeblood of who we are. For the gospel to be our mission. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is mission. What does it mean to be on mission for Jesus or better yet with Jesus? The why we exist, why we've been placed together here in this time, in this place. Now, I have printed in the bulletin on the back every week why we exist. It speaks about mission. Our mission is to proclaim and live out the reality of the gospel. So this morning, I want to look at this idea of mission from the passage of Matthew 28, 16 through 20, which is one of the most famous passages in Scripture. It's commonly called the Great Commission. It's Jesus' last words at the end of the book of Matthew to his disciples. Because of what Jesus has done, what should they do with the rest of their lives? So we'll break it up into a couple of different sections. The first one is this, the people of Jesus' mission. In Matthew 28, it's been a whirlwind uh, few weeks for the disciples. They've followed Jesus for years. They were his friends and helpers as Jesus had ministered, teaching and healing people and helping and, and speaking of the coming kingdom of God. And they had seen Jesus go from the expected and celebrated king. We do that on Palm Sunday at Easter time. Jesus was received as this arriving and victorious king in the city of Jerusalem. They'd seen in the span of a week Jesus go from this celebrated and expected king to a rejected and failed leader. They had seen Jesus crucified when he didn't meet the expectations of the crowd and how they wanted their king to save them. And the disciples themselves had fled in fear for their lives. And the body of Jesus was placed in a tomb, and it all seemed to be over. But three days later, the impossible happened. Jesus had risen from the dead, beyond the power of death to hold, beyond the power of the Roman government to destroy his body and stop. He was alive. And then Jesus spent weeks with his disciples, instructing them about what was coming next. And that's part of what our passage is this morning. Jesus appearing to his disciples after the resurrection to give them the mission that will continue his work. And we learn a number of things from this passage, and I just want to point out a few of them. The first one is this in verse 17. 
where we learn that being on mission with Jesus isn't just for perfect people who have it all figured out. Where do we see that? Notice it says, when they saw him, this is the resurrected Jesus who is free from death. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted, but some doubted. They see, and they touch, and they are speaking to the risen Jesus. They rightly worship him as the God-man who's rescued them, but some of them who were worshipping, some of them who were about to receive this commission to be his witnesses in all of the world, doubted. And I'm so glad this is here. It tells us that we can worship even when we don't have everything figured out. It tells us that we can be on mission with Jesus when we don't have everything figured out. This is a verse that I've come back to many times to encourage my own heart when I doubt, when I struggle. To know that God's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of our doubts. And so we don't have to be afraid of them either. We can bring our doubts and questions with us. We don't have to wait to get to a certain point when, okay, now I can be on mission for Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus begins to give them the mission, and he begins first by telling them not what they're going to do. He tells them about himself, and that's where we learn a second thing about being on mission with Jesus. It's this. It's rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done. He tells them that all authority has been given to him. In fact, Jesus begins his great commission and ends it by reminding them of this. Look at verse 20, the very end of it. He says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Being on mission with Jesus, putting our lives to work um, after what truly matters is something that is rooted first and foremost in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. This also shows us a third thing. Being on mission for Jesus is, first of all, being on mission with Jesus. It's a continuation of what he has accomplished. It's not us being inspired what Jesus has done and then go find the thing we like and we chase after that. It's a continuation where Jesus is present with us. A continuation of what he has accomplished. To be on mission for Jesus and with him has to be rooted in the fact that he is victorious and he is with us. If we try to follow after Jesus with anything else other than that as our source of strength, it'll be like trying to run an unleaded car on diesel gasoline. If you've ever done that by accident, you know the car will get a little ways down the road. It'll start to sputter. It'll stop running and the engine will blow up. <laughs> and then you got an expensive repair. I'm stretching the metaphor a little too far. But... Trying to follow after Jesus and be on mission with him to love God and love others well with anything other than what he has accomplished and his presence with us empowering us is like trying to run or unleaded cars with diesel gas. It's not going to work. But what we do, mission, what we do is always, always, always to be founded on who we are in Jesus. And that's this. We are dearly delighted in children of God who are justified in God's sight, who are being transformed, and who are abounding in hope together. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. That we never move on from that. That that is not just what we say, but it comes, becomes the very source of everything 
that we do in our life together. So, this mission isn't just for people who have it all together. It's rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's following him in mission. But what is the mission? What is the mission? We find that out when we turn to verse 19. And this is our second section, section the places of the mission. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The idea is here is he's telling them, you guys are about to scatter. You've been together for all these years. You've built these friendships with one another. And you are about to scatter into all the world. And as you go, wherever you find yourselves down the road in life, whatever twists and turns it winds up making, be about the making of disciples. Be about seeing the grace of God come to life and flourish and thrive in your life and in others. Now, this commission to go and to make disciples, it isn't just for the handful of people that Jesus is speaking to here. It was included for us decades later in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's there for us today so that we would see it and we would hear it as our commission as well. It's not just for pastors or church leaders. This is a commission for all of us with all of our different gifts and all the different stages of life we might find ourselves. Wherever God places us, wherever we are, wherever we are going, be about the making of disciples. What does that mean? Disciples is one of those uh, Christianese words that we say and we don't ever really define. How would the disciples themselves have understood this when Jesus said it? They would have understood it because they had just experienced living with Jesus. Disciple is a word that means follower or imitator. In the ancient world, rabbis would take followers to themselves and they would live together. A rabbi, it was kind of like an apprentice relationship, like a master carpenter taking an apprentice. Master Carpenter takes an apprentice and he shows him how to do the work by showing it to him while he's doing it. And they, the, the Master Carpenter teaches the apprentice by gradually letting the apprentice do work as well, reviewing it. But they're working together. They're living together. The apprentice is watching the Master Carpenter at work to learn how to be a Master Carpenter themselves. Well, in the ancient world, teachers would take disciples to themselves and they would live together. They would teach them. They would minister together. And the goal was the rabbi creating essentially little copies of himself. That's actually why the first Christians were called Christians. It means little Christs. Um, it was actually a term of derision. They were picking on Christians. Um, but that's what Christian means. It means little Jesuses. You're not going to die for anybody's sins, by the way, but... It means a, a, a copying this way of life, of being about the good of others, being about loving God and loving others. That's what the word disciple means. The idea was they, they would pour into this exceptionally talented person for the number of years. And that's where Jesus flips the idea of a rabbi and a disciple on his head. Because rabbis would go and find the best and the brightest. And they would find them at a young age. For most uh, uh, children in Hebrew school, they would only go to a certain extent because the vast majority of them were going to go into a trade or they were going to go into this or that kind of way of life. So they would only go to school for so long. Rabbis would seek out the kids who were in incredibly gifted intellectually, and they'd pick them at like 13 years old. 
and it would be a rabbi with a gathering of followers after him. But when Jesus searched out his disciples, that kind of core 12 disciples, only one of them really met the requirements or the usual uh, 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 um, characteristic of age. That was the Apostle John. Everybody else was too old. Everybody else had been looked over. In fact, Peter, who became the leader of the disciples, he was a married man with a business. He was far past the age of being selected by a rabbi. Jesus didn't pick from the pool of the best and brightest. He picked from the pool of people that had been overlooked, had been seen and looked over <laughs> by rabbis if they were even considered at all. He picked, quote unquote, normal people. I think this taught the disciples a lesson that they remembered later on, that following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, is not a talent contest. It's not a matter of finding the flawless, best, and brightest. Their lesson was as they continue the mission of Jesus, empowered by Him, was to pursue and invest in the people that God brought to them. Because every person is created in the image of God with inherent value and worth. Every person is worth seeing and valuing. It was a lesson to them that wherever you wind up finding yourselves down the road, whoever God brings in the door, that's not a mistake. Don't just look for the folks that don't look like they're going to be uh, 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 trouble down the road. <laughs> Like they're going to take up too much time or they're going to be difficult to love. Don't just look for the people who are incredibly intellectually gifted or obviously talented. That being a disciple of Jesus, that being a follower of Jesus is not a talent contest. And how did Jesus teach them what it meant for them to be discipled by him? Because he intended them to take the lessons of them being discipled by him and replicating them later on in the churches. That they would start. Well, Jesus lived with his disciples. They lived together, quite literally. He, they dwelt together. They saw Jesus, not just when Jesus had uh, put on his, you know, game face to go out in public. They saw the day in, day out existence. They ate together. They shared their lives with each other. For them, becoming disciples of Jesus was, wasn't just something that happened on Sundays or Saturdays. It didn't just happen at synagogue or when Jesus was teaching. It happened as they lived together. It happened in community. That's where becoming a disciple happens. Not first in programs. Programs are great. Events are great. Saying we're going to have a discipleship group. We might do that later on and it would be a wonderful thing. But it doesn't magically happen because we say discipleship is going to happen at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday night when we sit around together. It happens in the context of life when we share not only the gospel with each other, but we share our very lives as well. When we take off the religious masks that we wear, the high body, and we are seen and known, and we watch the grace of God come to life in one another and in ourselves. That's where discipleship happens, in the context of real community. It happens as we open our hearts and our lives to each other. Not our best presentation, but in real friendship. And Jesus commands two very specific things that discipleship involves. He talks about baptism, and he talks about teaching people to obey all that he's commanded. 
He tells them to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is when God washes us with water. When we, in a sense, are claimed by him. To be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means that I am Tim who belongs to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm only, no, no longer accounted simply on my own. I am joined, joined to the God of the universe who has marked me and assured me in this action of me being washed with water, that he is for me. It's a pledge that God will do everything he says he will do. That he will cleanse us and make us new. And that is supposed to become the foundation of who we are. To belong to God is to know that I am a person that has been cleansed and I am loved, period. And that's supposed to be a source of encouragement for us. Not that we look back to our baptism and we say, well, that's when I finally figured out and I decided as a pledge of my commitment to God that now I'm going to be baptized. We look back to our baptism and we say, I have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He has acted on me. It's not me making a pledge and saying, I'm in it now. It's me looking back to God's intentions for me. And it's supposed to be something that brings us encouragement a whole lot long. That it becomes a defining thing. That I'm cleansed by God. That I am His. I am not my own, but I belong to Him. In fact, Martin Luther, the great um, reformer in the 16th century, in his times of greatest struggle and doubt, he would shout, I am baptized. And what he was telling himself, what he was telling Satan, who he says was tempting him. What he was telling the whole world that could hear him is that no matter what you say to me or my heart that condemns me, I am baptized. I am one that has been marked by the God who cleanses. I am baptized. Not I was baptized. I am baptized. I am owned by God. And none can say otherwise. So that's one piece. Jesus commands his disciples to go into all the world and not just throw water on people or not just get them really wet in water, but to invite them into a community where they do not belong to just themselves in the loneliness and disconnectedness of our world, but they belong to God first and foremost and to all who belong to It implies a community. And then what does he say? He says, teach them to obey everything that Jesus has taught, to walk in the way of life that Jesus has shown them and spoken to them about. And what is that? Jesus summarizes it for us when he's finally asked, what is the most important thing? He says to love God and to love others. That's the summary of the whole law, the whole thing. Love God and love others. That's the essence of what Jesus commands us to. So baptize people into this community where they know they are not alone, where they are not their own, but they belong to God. And teach them to walk in love. That's the essence of what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. But here's the tricky thing. That command to love God and others, apart from the truth of knowing justification by faith, that we stand before God in confidence because of what he's done, not because of our own works. That command to love God and love others is just another thing that we can't measure up to. Because in so many ways, I don't love God. In so many ways, I don't love others. There are so many pieces in my heart that are still uh, yet to be redeemed. But if 
we are justified in God's sight and if we come to Jesus by faith, we absolutely are. We can walk in the love of God and love others because we aren't trying to do it to prove ourselves. We have a worthiness that's already established in Jesus. We don't have to prove ourselves. We are already in love. We don't have to earn it. And springing from that worthiness and that love that already belongs to us, we can truly love others. That's our mission as a church, to be a place where people know that their worthiness rests in Jesus, that they are loved. And because of that, we faith, whatever we face in following Jesus doesn't have to terrify us down the road. That means that we can follow Jesus in the ways that may make us uncomfortable, but follow him knowing that the bedrock of what we walk on is not our good intentions. It's his love for us. Following Jesus, even in loving people that are very different from us. I think that's why Jesus doesn't just say, go and make disciples. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He's very specific here. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's telling them, go and be about the thriving and flourishing and the growth and grace of people who aren't just like you, but people who are very different than you. His disciples didn't naturally like all nations. In fact, a vast majority, maybe not majority, a big chunk of the New Testament is dealing with the fallout of what we would call today racism. It's people from very different cultures and nations learning how to live in community with each other. And it doesn't go well. It's really, really rocky. And on so many of the churches and so many of the uh, letters of the Apostle Paul are written specifically to people who are trying to learn how to live with one another, even though they're very different. People who were ethnically and culturally Jewish struggled as people from very different backgrounds and cultures came to faith in Jesus. What it meant for them and what it means for us to be on mission with Jesus means that we begin the work of putting to death our prejudices for the sake of his glory. That we don't try to get to a place where we pretend our differences don't exist. We don't try to get to a place where we don't see color or pretend like cultural differences aren't there. That's to close our eyes off to people and who they are. But it does mean to be aware of the ways that our preferences, our backgrounds, our prejudices may be a barrier to loving others the way that Jesus is leading us into. And we don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be afraid of whatever would come up as we grow in grace and we see the depths of our selfishness and we see the depths of the wrong in our hearts because we are what? A people who have been promised to be cleansed by God. So nothing that comes up, that drudges up as we walk, has to be scary. So our mission, as we define it, to proclaim and live out the rally of the gospel. To proclaim. And that does, to proclaim doesn't just mean to preach. It means that our speech in every way is formed by this. And it springs from this. To live out the reality, it means we reorder our entire lives to what the gospel tells us. The next five weeks, we are going to be looking at our core values as a church. Things we've identified that help us stay on mission and value what Jesus values. Things uh, we define uh, transformational worship, lifelong discipleship, authentic community, compassionate outreach, unity and diversity. We're going to be talking about all those things in the next five weeks. But as we walk into these topics, let's never forget this. It's entirely founded in every way in the mission that Jesus has given to us. 
And that is a mission that isn't for people who have it all figured out. It's a mission that's rooted in Jesus and what he's done. It's a mission that is about the making of disciples, sharing life together in something that only ever happens in community with each other. Let's lean into mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives us and the call that it gives us to be a people who put the rest of our lives toward the work of seeing people know your grace and grow in it. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be energized toward this end, that we would see it happen, and that we would walk into it ourselves, allow ourselves to be disciples in unexpected ways. Move in us, God, that our confidence would be in you and not ourselves. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.